This is an Emmaus Church podcast. For more information about Emmaus Church, please visit EmmausDenver.com. Good morning, Emmaus. Um, we're so happy to be with you today, this morning. Um, yes, we're all in a, a new space today. Um, and even though, so all of it, those of you who are here today, we're going to do sort of the same thing where um, we will come and dismiss you after service. Um, and then if you choose to mingle and hang out with folks, we're going to ask that you do that outside, please. Um, the one announcement that we have is that next week we're starting Advent. So I'm really excited about that. Um, I've heard it's the most wonderful time of the year. Um, but I, yeah, I think it'd be great. <laughs> okay, so today's uh, scripture reading uh, is Isaiah 9, 8 through the end, and Isaiah 10, 5 through 27. The Lord has sent a word against Jacob, and it will fall on Israel, and all the people will know, Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, who say in pride and in arrogance of heart, the bricks have fallen, but we will build with dressed stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will put cedars in their place. But the Lord raises the adversaries of resin against him and stirs up his enemies. The Syrians on the east and the Philistines on the west devour Israel with open mouth. For all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. The people did not turn to him who struck them, nor inquire of the Lord of hosts. So the Lord cut off from Israel head and tail, palm branch and reed in one day. The elder and honored man is the head, and the prophet who teaches lies is the tail. For those who guide this people have been leading them astray, and those who are guided by them are swallowed up. Therefore the Lord does not rejoice over their young men, and has no compassion on their fatherless and widows, for everyone is godless and an evildoer, and every mouth speaks folly. For all this his anger has not turned away, and his hand still is stretched out. For wickedness burns like a fire, it consumes briars and thorns, it kindles the thickets of the forest, and they roll upward in a column of smoke. Through the wrath of the Lord of hosts, the land is scorched, and the people are like fuel for the fire. No one spares another. They slice meat on the right, but are still hungry, and they devour on the left, but are not satisfied. Each devours the flesh of his own arm. Manasseh devours Ephraim, and Ephraim devours Manasseh. Together they are against Judah. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger. The staff in their hands is my fury. Against a godless nation I send him, and against the people of my wrath I command him to take spoil and seize plunder, and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. But he does not so intend, and his heart does not so think, but it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. For he says, are not my commanders all kings? Is not Calno like Carchemish? Is not Hamath like Arpad? Is not Samaria like Damascus? As my hand has reached to the kingdoms of the idols, whose carved images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not do to Jerusalem and her idols, as I have done to Samaria and her images? When the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. For he says, by the strength of my hand, I have done it. And by my wisdom, for I have understanding, I remove the boundaries of peoples and plunder their treasures. Like a bull, I bring down those who sit on thrones. My hand has found like a nest the wealth of the peoples. And as one gathers eggs that have been forsaken, so I have gathered all the earth. And there was none that moved a wing or opened the mouth or chirped. 
Shall the ax boast over him who hews with it, or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it? As if a rod should wield him who lifts it, or as if a staff should lift him who is not wood. Therefore the Lord God of hosts will send wasting sickness among his stout warriors, and under his glory a burning will be kindled like the burning of fire. The light of Israel will become a fire, and his holy one a flame, and it will burn and devour his thorns and briars in one day. The Lord of his forest and his fruitful land, the Lord will destroy both soul and body, and it will be as when a sick man wastes away. The remnant of the trees of his forest will be so few that a child can write them down. In that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel in truth. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. For though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness. For the Lord God of hosts will make a full end as decreed in the midst of all the earth. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, be not afraid of the Assyrians when they strike with the rod and lift up their staff against you as the Egyptians did. For in a very little while, my fury will come to an end and my anger will be directed to their destruction. And the Lord of hosts will wield against them a whip as when he struck Midian at the rock of Oreb and his staff will be over the sea and he will lift it as he did in Egypt. And in that day, his burden will depart from your shoulder and his yoke from your neck and the yoke will be broken because of the fat. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Yay, new space. <laughs> I'm all excited. Um, Oh, oh, I don't know. Oh, the the gamma. I don't. <laughs> so, <laughs> all right, I gotta raise this up a little bit. Um, yeah, it's pretty cool to be in our new space. Um, obviously, there's a handful of little technical things, but it's neat that we are leaning into a place where we can actually show up. Um, we can actually like change things and keep it a certain way. So I'm pretty excited about uh, about being here. And also just kind of thanks to a ton of the people that spent some time making this happen this morning. We had uh, we only had a couple of weeks to actually, uh, I don't even know if we had a couple of weeks to go from the mansion to here. Uh, so thanks to Ben, who spent a ton of time getting things going. Um, Kelsey helped, Laura helped, Lauren helped, Brett helped, I believed. Tim helped. Yeah, both of these guys are like, we didn't really, didn't really do a whole lot, but they did help. So we, we appreciate that help. And also thank you for everybody that's donated to our fund to sort of improve the space as well. Um, sort of the thinking behind that is we are co-tenants uh, with, an, with obviously an art gallery that uses this throughout the week. Um, so they don't have like events, but they do have people come in to uh, by appointment to look at the art. So part of why we're trying to raise money uh, is cleaning up some of you know the cables or making some things more more mobile. We're just trying to be uh, good co-tenants to the people that we share the space with. So thank you everybody who has donated to that. Um, another thing that came up that I'm sort of excited about. Here I'm going to move this a little bit to my face. Um, I feel better now. <laughs> Another one of the things that came up that I'm kind of excited about is potentially using this space in the morning uh, for prayer. Uh, Becca, you brought it up in the members meeting. Garrett has brought it up to me in the past as well. It'd be really, I mean, when I thought about it, I was like, what better way 
What better way to utilize the time God has given us where we don't have to set up and tear down, uh, but to get some sort of rhythm to, to pray as a community. So I'm sort of excited to, to think about that. And I bring it up uh, on the recording on Sunday so that Becca and Garrett can help hold me to that because I, I don't want that to get lost and kind of some all the things that are, that are going on. Um, so yeah, all, all of the excitement in the space this looks beautiful. Uh, I'm excited to talk about some of the things uh, in the book of Isaiah. So we're almost, we're actually almost done with our first sort of major section in the book of Isaiah. It's the section that we're calling our image problem. And, and we're, we're calling it that because the, the first 12 chapters of Isaiah, God is speaking to his people about how they don't image him. Or, you know, another way you could say it, how they don't perfectly love God or love neighbor. And, and the good news is that he doesn't, he doesn't stop there. He's not just showing us how we fail. He's showing us the beauty of the gospel, the, the good news of this better son who does perfectly image God, the Jesus who is the exact imprint of his nature. And he's, he's showing us the beauty of the gospel because this is actually what, fix, this is actually what fixes our image problem. And, and this is a huge part of the first 12 chapters in Isaiah. Isaiah wants us to see the beauty of the true son of God. And, and so that beauty, that beauty would actually solve our image problem. And so in, in a sense, though, you could just say, you could say that this is the whole of the Christian life. You and I, day after day, are being transformed more into the image of Jesus by the beauty of Jesus. And, and here at Emmaus, we're very particular about that. We say the beauty of Jesus because we're trying to make a statement that it's not doing the Christian things that changes us. It's actually seeing and beholding the beauty of the gospel that actually changes who we are. And if you're interested, we have a, we have a whole sermon that kind of walks through our vision, our vision to see Denver transformed by the beauty of the gospel. And we sort of develop this idea from scripture. But I think I think this is something that we can actually relate to just for everyday normal things in our lives. I mean, I, I think about um, my own personal example is I, I see the beauty of cycling in a way I didn't see before. And because I see that as beautiful, I wear clothes I would have never worn before. Um, but but, but it, that didn't start that way. I, I began to be involved in this activity and I begin to see it as more and more beautiful. So the things about me naturally change because I find beauty in this activity that I'm doing. You know, uh, you know things like adjusting my budget a tiny bit so I can save up for a bicycle or uh, now I evaluate vacation spots based on how the bike trails are at when we get there. Uh, I've, I've adjusted sort of my schedule around so I can ride when it's warmer during the day. I, I, there's, uh, you know, I, I listen to things, I read, I learn differently because I, because I found this activity to be beautiful. And, and no one told me, Aaron, hey, if you change all these things, you will find this activity beautiful. Um, they, the, the fact that I got involved in this and the fact that I became attracted to cycling, these things naturally began to change in my life. And, and this is how the gospel is meant to work. The more you find the gospel attractive and beautiful, the more you naturally change your life around it. Yes, you change your schedule, your friends, your actions. And, and as we would say, the more you see the beauty of Jesus 
the more you begin to look like Jesus. So we're, we're, we learn to see his beauty so that we can have every little part of our lives transformed more and more into the image of Jesus. And it's another way of saying this is how we solve our image problem. Now, most of us, especially the people in this room, most of us have heard this idea that beauty transforms us. It's something that we're, we're fairly familiar with, something that resonates with us. We're, we're drawn to beauty and it, and it changes us. The problem comes, the more, the more difficult part about this comes when we realize that we're drawn to other beauties, we're drawn to lesser things than Christ. The, the problem comes when we start to realize that we're more transformed by the beauty around us than the beauty of the gospel. I mean, because it's beyond it. Like, it's easier for me to be attracted to riding a bike than it is to be attracted to the person and work of Christ. And I think that goes for us in a lot of different ways. It can be easier easier for us to see the beauty of a better job. So maybe we work harder or we move for it. Uh, it's easier to be the be- see the beauty in a, in a potential spouse. So we change churches or fr- friend, friend groups or download certain apps. It's easy to beauty in a, in a happy child. So as a parent, we, we change all kinds of things to ensure that we can experience that beauty. And, and all of those are beautiful things. It's easy to see the beauty in those things. So, so we are naturally just transformed by those things. But what happens? But what happens when we're honest with ourselves and say, maybe I'm not changing to look like Jesus because I don't actually see much of the beauty of Jesus. Maybe I'm not changing to look like Jesus because I don't actually see much of the beauty of Jesus. What do we do when we realize other things change us more than the gospel? What do we do when we can't see the beauty of Jesus? And that's, that's a big part of what Isaiah addresses in these chapters. So we're in chapter 9, and we've talked a lot about different elements of the gospel. We've talked about uh, this child who's going to be called Emmanuel, God with us. We've talked about the good news of this perfect king who's going to be called the Prince of Peace. Ben talked about a, a better vine that would produce the fruit that God desires. We've talked about uh, this, this new Jerusalem, this, this place where all the nations flow in to worship and to experience God. And we've been talking about the gospel in Isaiah for chapter after chapter. In Israel, the nation of Israel continues to be blind to the beauty of this gospel. Israel as a nation continues to completely miss the beauty of what God is promising. And now, I feel like in Sunday school, it's just like easy to sort of throw Israel under the bus. Uh, but, but let's be honest, like we, we struggle too. We're presented with more beauty of the gospel. We're presented with more information about the person and work of Jesus. And honestly, we often, we find things around us more beautiful than the gospel itself. And I think, you know, I think about it. And if, if biking can sort of change little things about me, why can't the beauty of the gospel do the same thing? How, how can we together grow in understanding and appreciating more of the beauty of Christ? Well, this, this morning, Isaiah kind of helps us with that. He helps us see the beauty of the gospel through the failure of some others. And we get, we get two failures 
that hide the beauty of the gospel from us. And then we get two failures that show us the beauty of the gospel. And I feel like this is easier. Uh, It's always a little bit easier to see and learn from the failure of others. So maybe that's what we'll do as we look at Isaiah this morning. We'll we'll see two failures that hide the beauty of the gospel and two failures that reveal the beauty of the gospel. So let's pray and then we'll jump in. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you um, just for your patience with us. I thank you that how much we see and are changed by you is not the basis for your love for us, Lord. I thank you that we can, we can rest in the good news that Jesus has accomplished these things for us and we can recognize when we don't, we don't see that as good, Lord. So I, I pray that your spirit would work. Uh, I pray that your spirit would work in a, a supernatural way um, through this passage and, and through my fallible words, Lord. I pray that your, your spirit would work in a supernatural way just to make us more and more impressed with who you are in the person of Christ, Lord. So I thank you for this opportunity. I thank you for the space. Thank you for the people here and the people on the live stream and just the blessing that they are to me. In your name I pray, amen. All right, so we're gonna see two failures. Mentioned that already. We have Israel and Assyria. Um, they completely face plant. And then we have Oreb and Egypt. Um, so, so before we jump into the failure of Israel, we have to remember a little bit of what's going on in the context of the book of Isaiah. And I mentioned this, this image problem, but a big theme through the entire book of Isaiah is that God's son has failed. God's son has rejected their father. And now God's son is going to take the wrath and be cast out of the land. But the, but the strange thing, the thing that we, we shouldn't expect is as God's son takes this wrath, they're going to end up on the other side of that judgment more beautiful and more glorious than before. And, and you get this theme throughout all of Isaiah. It starts in chapter 1. It talks about this, this refining fire where God is going to bring judgment and melt away the dross or melt away the trash. And then on the other side, you have, you have pure and precious metals. We have in chapters 2 through 4, there's this theme of like the great day of the Lord. And it's almost like a contradictory day. You have a day where this judgment and this wrath, this doom and gloom is poured out. And then on the other side, you have this glorious city and this wonderful nation and this eternal kingdom. And, and then last week, we talked about this idea that God's wrath is like a flood. You have, you have sort of the same two themes. You have this idea that the, 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 this flood is going to come and cause doom and gloom and, and people are starving and complaining. Then, then all of a sudden, there's a switch. There's like this dramatic change where now someone has made glorious the way of judgment and there's celebration, and there's rejoicing, and there's joy. And there's this, this repeated theme in Isaiah that the failed son is now passed through the wrath of God and is end up on the other side more glorious and more wonderful than before. And the reason why that theme is through the entire book of Isaiah is because it's teaching us about the death and resurrection of the true son of God. It's teaching us about the gospel. So here we are this morning, and we're in a section where God is describing the judgment that his people are passing through, the judgment he's bringing because of the failure of the broken son of God, the failure of Israel. And here we get a chance to see how their failures blind them or hide them from the good news of the gospel so that you and I wouldn't fall into the same trap. So let's start by looking at the first few verses in this section. Look at, uh, starting in verse 8. 
The Lord has sent a word against Jacob, and it will fall on Israel. And all the people will know, Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, who say in pride and in arrogance of heart, the bricks have fallen, but we will build with dress stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will put cedars in their place. But the Lord raises the adversaries of resin against him and stirs up his enemies. The Syrians on the east and the Philistines on the west devour Israel with an open mouth. For all this, his anger is not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. So Israel has been warned. They've been repeatedly told God is going to bring this judgment on them. But what they do in their pride and their arrogance, they completely ignore God. So much so uh, that there was a, a previous part where God, through the prophet, approaches the king and says, hey, if you would just trust me, I'll give you whatever sign you want, whatever you want. And he's like, no thanks. So in their pride, this is, this is the point where they're at, in their pride, when things fall apart, when God brings warnings of this great judgment that's coming, they ignore it. Bricks fallen, oh well, we'll use something stronger, dress stones. Sycamores have been cut down. No mind, we'll just use cedars. But God says that they've been ignoring my words, so now I'm, I'm sending a word that all the people will know. Now I'm sending a word that they can't ignore. I'm raising the enemies against them to devour. And they, they, will, they will pass through this judgment that I've planned. And that's what, that's what God means when he says, for all of this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. They can ignore, but he's got a word, he's got a, he's got a judgment coming that they can't ignore. But this is their failure. They continue in their pride to ignore the reality that God has promised to bring this great judgment. They continue to ignore what God is doing, so they go on pretending nothing is gonna happen. Things fall down, they'll just build it back up as long as they can ignore the reality that God is bringing judgment. That's what uh, verse 13 is saying. Look at what it, in verse 13 in chapter nine, the people did not turn to him who struck them, nor inquire of the Lord of hosts. They continue to ignore God. They refuse to turn to the Lord, the one who's bringing both the judgment for their sin and also the good news that he provides a rescue. But because they ignore the judgment, they fail to see the beauty of the good news that God provides. And because of that failure, it kind of escalates. Look at verse 20 and 21. They slice meat on the right, but are still hungry. They devour on the left, but are not satisfied. Each devours the flesh of his own arm. Manasseh devours Ephraim. Ephraim devours Manasseh. Together they are against Judah. For all this, his anger is turned away and his hand is stretched out still. What this, is, what this is pointing us at is that God has designed his creatures, God has designed his people Israel to find their satisfaction in, in their God. Like we're, we're created with this impulse to actually find true, lasting, and eternal rest in our creator. So when we ignore him, and we go to the left and we eat over here, we go to the right, we devour. When we ignore him, we begin, to, we begin to not be satisfied and go after other things to continue to, to feed that satisfaction that's meant to be found in God. 
And so he's showing right here with Ephraim and Manasseh, uh, and Judah, these are all members of the same community. This is all, these are all God's children. It's this, this sort of graphic picture of them devouring each other because they're no longer finding satisfaction in God. But God is bringing a word. God is bringing a word that they can't ignore. And he says, for all of this, his anger is not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. And that's the, you know, that's really the failure of Israel. They ignore the judgment of God So they're blind to see the beauty of the gospel, the good news of the promises that God gives to his people to sustain and satisfy them. They ignore God, so they they miss out on the source that's, that's there for all of their fulfillment and satisfaction. And I think, you know, we can... It's gotta be a little easy to sympathize with this. We don't have an invading Assyrian army Um, But we definitely have to deal with just some things in this cursed and broken world. We we have to deal with a world that's currently under the wrath of God. Things are obviously not how they should be. Things aren't how they should be because God has cursed the world because of sin. And it's not just the the failure of Israel right here, the son of God. It's, It's the failure of Adam, the first son of God, that's brought sin into the world. And, it, and what's our reflex when we, when we have to deal with, with broken things in the world? Do we, do we turn to find rest and fulfillment and satisfaction in, in God himself? Or do we look for things sometimes literally to devour in this world? Do we look for things outside of him to find satisfaction? And I think it's, you know, we kind of joke about Netflix binges to relax. We talk about hiking or, or mountain trips to recharge, or sometimes we're just kind of looking forward to the next thing. The next thing will make it better. It could be, could be the next weekend. It could be the next stage in our child's development. Um, the, the vaccine, I think, is something we're all sort of hoping for. It'd be nice to get this pandemic over with. But if we ignore the difficult things that God has brought into our lives, if we ignore these little judgments and the big ones, if we ignore these things, and it keeps us from turning to God himself. It keeps us from turning to find and understand and rest in the beauty of the gospel. If we ignore these things, then we're gonna miss an opportunity to find more rest and more comfort in God himself. And I think, you know, I thought about this. I was like, what is it? You know, none of those things I mentioned are, are bad. There's nothing wrong with any of that stuff. But what do we do when God continues to bring a difficult circumstance in our life? How do we sort of unlearn that reflex that we have to go to things to fulfill us? And I thought, maybe I just stop and and, and recognize what I'm doing. Maybe I just say, Lord, I don't see your gospel as beautiful. Right now, I see an afternoon on a bike by myself or the giant whole pizza I wanna eat when I get back from that is more beautiful than what your son has done for me. And I think we can just stop and say, Lord, help us, help us find more satisfaction in who you are than the things that we turn to. And I think we can, we, of course, we can give thanks to God and say, all good gifts come from you, Lord, but we build this reflex of finding rest, of finding hope, of finding joy in the things of the world and not in God himself. So I think that, and I thought about that and I was like, if that's a prayer you know, we talk about praying in line with God's will. That's a prayer that God wants to answer. God wants you to find more rest 
and satisfaction in him. So I think, I think it's just good to maybe recognize where you do that. Stop and ask the Lord and say, Lord, how can I find more fulfillment in you, in the, more fulfillment in the creator of all these things than the creation down here? So I think this is a good place to just stop and ask the Lord to help us do those things. All right, so that's the failure of Israel. Uh, the failure of Assyria is a, a little bit more straightforward, um, but it's, a, it's another opportunity to see just this reality of, of ignoring God and not being able to rest in the beauty of the gospel, um, except a little bit more extreme. So look at uh, Isaiah 10. We'll start in verse 5. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury. Against the godless nation I send him, and against the people of my wrath I command him to take spoil and seize plunder, and to tear them down like the mire of the streets. But he does not so intend, and his heart does not so think. But it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. For he says, are not my commanders all kings? Is not Kauno like Carchemish? Is not Hamath like Arpad? Is not Samaria like Damascus? As my hand has reached to the kingdoms of the idols whose carved images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria. Shall I not do to Jerusalem and her idols as I have done to Samaria and her images? God is sort of reminding us right here that he's using Assyria, the empire he brings up in the previous chapters. He's using Assyria to accomplish his purposes for his people. That's why he calls them the rod of my anger. He's like, you're, you're a tool in my hand. But Assyria, Assyria just wants to destroy. Assyria has, has other plans. Assyria fails by thinking it's their will is what's going to be done, not the will of God. And it, it's interesting, the, the Assyrian king kind of doubles down on that too. Look at what he says in verses 13 and 14. He says, for he, this Assyrian king says, by the strength of my hand, I've done it. And by my wisdom, for I have understanding, I remove the boundaries of peoples and plunder their treasures. Like a bull, I bring down those who sit on thrones. My hand has found like a nest, the wealth of the peoples. And as one who gathers eggs that have been forsaken, so I have gathered all the earth. And there was none that moved a wing or opened the mouth or chirped. I mean, he's very boldly saying, it's my wisdom, it's my strength accomplishing my will. And this is a, this is another failure that keeps us from seeing the beauty of the gospel. We've, we fail to realize that it's actually God's strength and God's wisdom always accomplishing God's will. And I love how God responds to the king in verse 15. He says, shall the axe boast over him who hews with it? Or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it? As if a rod should wield him who lifts it or as if a staff should lift him who is not wood. God reminds the king of Assyria that he's just a tool in his hands. And thinking that it's, it's your strength or your wisdom accomplishing your will is about as silly as thinking an ax gets to decide who swings it or a walking stick picking up the one who uses it. I mean, it's just ridiculous. But this is the failure of the king of Assyria. He doesn't realize that it's always God's will accomplishing God's purposes. Amen. It's always. That's what makes him God. And I think one of my old pastor in Omaha used to say, 
It's like God has a God complex because he should. He's the, he's the all-wise. He's the all-powerful. He's the all-loving. He's the one whose will that will always be accomplished. And we, and we don't usually take this uh, king of Assyria route where we kind of just outright deny God and, and prop ourselves up. Uh, we're, t- we're tempted to fail in a, in a different way. We're, we're tempted to think that maybe, maybe it's our power that's accomplishing our will. And we don't, we don't recognize that God is just using his people to accomplish his purposes. And, and other than that, we're also tempted to doubt what God is doing. We're tempted to say, Lord, hey, uh, what's wrong with this situation is not how I wanted this situation to be. Like, what, what's the deal, Lord? Don't, don't you understand that my will is, is more important? Or, or do, you, do you realize that what you're doing here isn't the right thing? And the problem is that whether we, we give ourselves credit or, or we doubt what God is doing, both of those reflexes, both of those reflexes keep us from seeing the beauty of the gospel. Both of those reflexes diminish the God that we worship and the son who says to us, without me, you can do nothing. So the failure to see that God is always working his will keeps us from seeing the beauty of the gospel. And in different ways, kind of Israel and Assyria failed to deal with the reality of God. One ignores God, and they miss out on the satisfaction that's found in his gospel. And the other one denies God. He doesn't realize that he's always working for the good of his people. Their failures hide them from the beauty of the gospel. But here's the good news. We actually, we, we actually do worship a God who is always working, even in our failures. And I think it's probably more appropriate to say we worship a God who's working especially in our failures. And this is what Isaiah hints at in verse 17 and 18. Look at what he says right here in the midst, midst of all this failure. We get a glimpse of the gospel. He says, the light of Israel will become a fire and its holy one a flame and it will burn and devour his thorns and briars in one day. He's talking about the Assyrian king. The glory of his forest and the fruitful land of the Lord will destroy both soul and body, and it will be as when a sick man wastes away. This is God talking about the Holy One, the Holy One who, will, who won't ignore God, the Holy One who won't put his will above the will of the Father. This is, this is the gospel of the Holy One who won't just destroy some random king, some, some random guy from 4,000 years ago, but will destroy the power behind that king himself. Will destroy sin, Satan, and death. Which is interesting because this, this, this title of the Holy One comes up in Mark. Uh, the demons use this uh, when, they re- when they reference the Lord. He says, and immediately, this is in Mark 1, immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit and he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And the demons are afraid of Jesus because they know Isaiah. They know that the Holy One is going to burn down their kingdom. They know he's going to destroy the power that they have. And that's why Isaiah brings us back to this great day, this image of this, this great day of the Lord. Look at verse 20. He says, in that day, 
The remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. And here we get a picture. Israel is broken. Assyria is broken. But the Holy One, the Holy One is who God's people will lean on in that day. And this is Isaiah reminding us that it's not, it's not about our failures. It's about a God who is always working in our failures. That's why Isaiah goes on to remind us, he, he goes backwards in time to remind us of two failures in the history of Israel, Oreb and Egypt. Two failures in the history of Israel that remind us of the beauty of the gospel. Look at what Isaiah says in verses 24 through 26. He says, therefore, or in light of this idea that there's a holy one, therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, be not afraid of the Assyrians when they strike with the rod and lift up their staff against you as the Egyptians did. For in a very little while, my fury will come to an end and my anger will be directed to their destruction. And the Lord of hosts will wield against them a whip as when he struck Midian at the rock of Oreb and his staff will be over the sea and he will lift it as he did in Egypt. So he tells us about the Holy One. He talks about that great day and he says, therefore, okay, in light of this Holy One, you don't need to be afraid of the Assyrians when they strike you like the Egyptians did. And what he's doing is he's looking back. He's looking back on their past slavery because whether he's talking about Egypt whether he's talking about the being dragged off by Assyria, later in the book of Isaiah, he's going to talk about Babylon. The, the, the point of this is this isn't about some city or some empire from 4,000 years ago. These are images of our slavery to sin. The thing that actually causes all of our failures, sin. And this is why Paul says that we, fought, we used to, before being united to Christ, we used to follow the prince of the power of the air. This is why Jesus, when talking to the Pharisees, says, you're enslaved. And they say, no, we're not. We're not enslaved to anybody. He says, you're enslaved to your father, the devil. The most evil slavery, whether it's Assyrian, whether it's Egyptian, whether it's Babylonian, the most evil slavery behind all slavery is sin. And that's why we fail. But that's also why the demons were afraid of Jesus. Isaiah says, lean on the Holy One, and you don't have to fear this slavery. You don't have to fear the sin that causes all of your failures. That's why he points us to two failures that show us the beauty of the gospel. He points to Oreb, and he points to Egypt. And these are two situations where God worked in the failures of his people to show them the beauty of the gospel. And I think Egypt is an easier one. Most of us have heard the Exodus story, but they're there under slavery of Egypt. They go through all of these plagues. They finally come out of Egypt. And as they're traveling out of Egypt in front of them, they see this giant sea. And behind them, they see an army coming to destroy them. And they're, they're in probably one of the most hopeless situations. And they're like, gee, thanks, Moses. You dragged us out here so that they don't even have to bury our bodies out here. We can just be put to death right here. And they're, they're, fine, they're in this really hopeless situation. And then that's when he, he references the lifting of the staff over the sea. He's like, 
you are such a failure. You're, you're, you're in this situation where nothing can, can change, nothing can save you. That's when you understand how my gospel works. That's when the staff is lifted over the sea, the, the ocean parts, and they walk through the sea, pictured as a sea of judgment onto dry, land, dry ground on the other side. And what happens to the enemies? They're completely destroyed. They have no fear. And he brings up, this is, this is God reminding us that he, he saves sinners. He saves failures. He saves, this is just what he does. This is, how, this is when the gospel works when we're at our most desperate place. And he brings up Oreb, which is a, a sort of a, a less common story, but most of us know about Gideon. And Gideon was not the bravest dude in the world. He doubted God on lots of different things. And God raised up Gideon to fight another enemy, another enemy of God's people. And so Gideon gets all these people together. He has this big army. He's like, all right, God, I trust you. We're gonna go take out the enemy. And God says, wait a minute, you have way too many people. And he's like, what do you mean? So he cuts the people down and down and down and down. And finally he says, wait, uh, how did they drink out of the pool? If they drink with their hand, uh, I don't remember which one he keeps, separate them out from the ones that lick the water. And so he's left with 300. It's the, it's the original 300 with no Gerard Butler. But there's only, there's only three, and I imagine probably less Apex, you know. Um, but, they're, but they're left there, and it's just picture of this tiny little group of 300. And God says, you know what? Now your failure is certain, so you can trust that I'm gonna work. And so they go and they attack, and they call it the Rock of Oreb, which is interesting because that's the prince, the prince of this country that they go and defeat, that's where his head is taken off at the rock of Oreb. They call it Oreb because it's Prince Oreb. It's another example of God working in our failures that is ultimately pointing us to Jesus who crushed the head of the serpent. And this is the beauty of the gospel that's being revealed in the failure of the people. But that's what God does. He shows us that we fail and reminds us that that's when he works. And if we believe that, then we can say with Isaiah in verse 27, he says, in that day, his burden will depart from your shoulder and his yoke from your neck and the yoke will be broken because of the fat. And I love that image. He's like, when you realize, when you realize in that day when Jesus accomplishes all these things for you, that true and lasting satisfaction is found in God himself, when you realize that, you'll be so satisfied that the, the yoke, which is the thing that they put on the animal, will bust because you're so fat. Like I, just, I love the like image of you're, like, you're so satisfied in who God is that the, the yoke or the burden just fall right off. But that's how we see the beauty of the gospel. That's how we really come to terms with how wonderful God is. We embrace our failures so that we can embrace the one who begins to work in our failures. That's how we see the beauty of the gospel. We look and we turn our eyes upon Jesus. And it's hard not to think of that song now where the things of the world grow strangely dim in light of his glorious grace. Thanks be to God for this unspeakable gift. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you. Um, 
I thank you that we can be honest about our failures because uh, we, we do. Uh, we find so much more hope and joy and peace and satisfaction in, in the things that you've created. And it's so hard um, to see you for who you really are and rest satisfied in your son, Lord. But you work miracles. Uh, you help us in our desperation and our failures, Lord. You're working in those. That's when you work. Uh, that's when you draw us closer to yourself, Lord. So I pray that you would, I pray that you would give us comfort when we fail. I pray that you would draw us closer to you um, so that we could, so that we could be so fat, so satisfied in who you are uh, that it just doesn't feel like a burden, Lord. So I, th- I thank you for the good news of that gospel. In your name I pray, amen.